If you've got a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 14 this morning. That's where we're going to be as we continue to work our way through Mark's Gospel. We are on a trajectory to finish Mark's Gospel Easter Sunday, taking a look at the resurrection. It's like somebody planned it that way, you know? Um, but we will finish Mark's Gospel Easter Sunday morning. Um, but this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 31. I encourage you to turn there and follow along as we read together. I'll pick up reading in Mark 14, uh, verse 12, and read down through verse 31. Mark records in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And then when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him and one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when, he had, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's Word. You know, throughout the Scriptures, God has um, given signs to His people with regards to the covenants that He enters into with them. So, in the Old Testament, He gives a sign of the rainbow there in the heavens that He would never destroy the earth again by a flood. He gives a sign of circumcision uh, to the males in Israel, Jewish males, to be circumcised uh, in order to show that they were separated, cut, up, cut off, essentially, uh, set apart for God and His service. Uh, they were the people of God. God gives the signs uh, throughout the Old Testament of when He enters into covenant with His people. And the same is true in the New. He gives us two signs in the New Testament to identify who His people are and set them apart from all the other peoples of the earth. And the first sign that He gives is that of baptism. Baptism in which we are plunged beneath the water and we're raised up, which we're saying, I'm dying to self, I'm dying to sin, I'm dying to running and ruling my own life. And I'm now being raised to put my feet on the path of following Jesus, loving Jesus, honoring Jesus, and serving Jesus. 
It's baptism. It's the initiatory sign by which people say, I belong to Jesus. I love Jesus. My loyalty belongs to Him. But there's a repeatable sign that's given. Baptism comes once. The Lord's table comes often. Right? The repeatable sign of this covenant that God enters into with His people is the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. It's where we come and we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we remember the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. Where we publicly come and celebrate God's love for us and reaffirm our love for God. So you have baptism as a sign and you have the Lord's Supper as a sign. Now, it, 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 it kind of confuses me sometimes whenever there are those individuals who just refuse to engage in the initiatory sign of baptism, but they want to come publicly and participate in the repetitive sign of the Lord's table. It's a little confusing to me. Because it would seem that you would not come to identify publicly with Jesus at the table until you would publicly identify with Him in the water and die to self and be raised to walk in newness of life. That's a sermon for another day. Okay? Um, this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 14 together, in the very middle of our text, what we find is the institution of the Lord's Supper. The institution of the Lord's Supper. And I don't have time this morning to say everything the New Testament says about the Lord's Supper. I don't even have time to say everything this text has to teach us. All right? But I want to give you three things this morning out of this text with regards to the Lord's Supper that I believe is the thrust of what Mark is wanting us to understand. And the first one is this. That when it comes to the Supper... At the very center of the Lord's Supper, at the very center of the table, is substitution. Is substitution. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Listen, it's no small thing here to notice the context into which Jesus speaks these words. In verse 12, we're told that Jesus' disciples are asking Him about where they should go to make preparations for He and His disciples to celebrate the Passover meal together. Now the Passover meal, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was an annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in Israel's history. The defining moment that made this people who they were. Israel had been enslaved and in captivity and bondage in Egypt. And God eventually breaks the will of Pharaoh through a series of judgments that he releases upon the people of Israel through plagues with the final plague that he would release being the death of the firstborn son. And so in Exodus chapter 12, God tells Moses and Aaron that he was planning to pass through the land of Egypt that, that night. He was going to pass through the land and take the lives of all the firstborn sons in the land. Right? Non-discriminatory, by the way. But he tells them, he gives them advance warning, and he instructs Moses and Aaron to have the people of Israel slaughter a lamb, to roast that lamb, right? to eat it with unleavened bread, and then to eat the meal fully dressed. In other words, fully expectant of God's deliverance that he would come to deliver and redeem and set them free and liberate them. They were to take the blood of the lamb after they had killed it and cover the doorposts of their home so that whenever God passed through the land, He would pass over those homes. So He passed through to take the lives of the firstborn sons, but He would pass over every single home whose doorpost was covered by the blood of the lamb who took shelter under that substitutionary sacrifice that was offered in their place. And that night, sure enough, in the land of Egypt, 
there was either a dead son or there was a dead lamb. One or the other. Either a dead son or a dead lamb. There was not a single Egyptian home where someone was not dead in the morning, but God passed over every home where the doorposts were covered in the blood of those lambs. You see, justice either fell on you, judgment either fell on you, or it fell on a substitute. It fell on the lamb. And the Lord passed over them, hence the name Passover, right? Passover. So, but listen, you weren't passed over in those days on the basis of your good behavior. You weren't passed over in those days on the basis of your upstanding reputation as a person of prominence in the community. You weren't passed over in those days based upon the good things that you had done, that your good things outweighed your bad things, and so God chose to give you grace and pass over you. But rather, you were passed over only on the basis of faith in the substitute that God had provided in the sacrifice, taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And so there was this annual meal which was prescribed for the people in Exodus chapter 12 as a commemoration of that defining moment in which they were liberated, redeemed, saved, and delivered. But Passover, every year, it had a shape to it. It had a sequence to it. So every year, the eldest male would interpret the feast for everyone who was present. He would help the family remember, remember what God had done, remember how He had delivered Israel from Egypt and anticipate his future deliverance through the sending of the Messiah. Now this meal every year is broken into four parts and each of those parts concluded with the drinking of a cup of wine. And throughout the meal they would recite Psalms 113 to 118, the Hallel Psalms. They would sing these as a part of this meal that they would share together. As the meal began, a blessing was pronounced by the head of the family over all who were gathered. And in response to that blessing that gets pronounced, the youngest child typically would ask a question, what makes this night different than all others? What makes it different than all others? And the father would recount the deliverance from, uh, from Egypt according to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 5-9. to Next, listen, the father would pronounce a benediction over the various foods that symbolize their bitter captivity in Egypt. What's a benediction? A farewell. Right? So a farewell over all these things that symbolize their captivity. The bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, right? the greens, the stewed fruit, and the roasted lamb. You say farewell to those things. Then family and guests were invited to partake of the meal. And near midnight, the feast would conclude with the singing of Psalms 116 to 118 and the drinking of the fourth cup of wine. It had that shape every single year as they commemorated God's deliverance of His people from the land of slavery, bondage, and captivity. Now, in verse 22 of Mark chapter 14, we are told that as they were eating, which would have likely signified this would have been the third portion of of the Passover meal. This is the segment in which Jesus rises in their midst. And what does He do? He rises to bless and give thanks for the bread that they were partaking and the cup that they were drinking. But I want you to imagine to the disciples' surprise. Right? They, they participated in these meals from the time that they were born up until, until now. So every year, the eldest male would recount the deliverance from Egypt and God's working on the behalf of Israel to bring them out. 
But imagine the surprise of the disciples when Jesus gets up and begins to bless the elements and interprets them, listen, not historically in relation to the nation of Israel, but personally in relation to his own body. They'd never heard this before. In all their years of participating in this Passover meal, Jesus says, take this my body. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In other words, Jesus takes those elements and He interprets the elements of the meal not in relation to what happened the night that judgment fell in Egypt and Israel was redeemed. No, no, no. He interprets those elements right, in relation to what will happen in the days ahead when judgment would fall on Him and that everyone who would trust Him, everyone who would take shelter under what? The blood of the Lamb as it was shed on their behalf, as He inaugurated a new covenant with them, would be passed over, exempt from God's final judgment. Jesus says, I am the Lamb. This is my body, broken. This is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering. And listen, just as this meal was once eaten to celebrate the night before God would deliver His people from the social and economic slavery and captivity in Egypt under Pharaoh, Jesus says, tonight and every time this meal is now eaten, it will be eaten to celebrate God's ultimate deliverance from sin, death, and evil itself. Now, that wasn't enough to show you that the center of the supper is substitution. My body, my blood, all wrapped up in this Passover context of God passing over because of a substitute. Listen to what else Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Now the phrase, as it is written of Him, carries the sense of divine purpose or God's foreordination. In other words, He's planned this from the beginning of creation, from before the foundations of the earth. And it's similar to what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost when he says in Acts 2.23, he makes this statement, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus says, as it is written of him or of me, Jesus says he is destined, right? He says, woe to the one who betrays me. It's better that he not be born than betray me. He says, but that's actually what I was born for, to be betrayed, to be delivered up, to be delivered over. That's why I've come. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. And yet there's no place in the Old Testament. This is interesting. There's no place in the Old Testament where we read about the Son of Man being destined to suffer. In fact, the Son of Man in the Old Testament comes out of the book of Daniel where Daniel has a vision. The heavens are open and he sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated upon the throne and one like a Son of Man approaching Him who comes before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days gives to Him dominion and power and authority to rule all of God's creation as King. But nowhere does the Bible in the Old Testament speak of the Son of Man being delivered up, the Son of Man being betrayed, the Son of Man being handed over, the Son of Man suffering. But the, there is a figure in the Old Testament that was written about as being destined to suffer, and that is in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we read about the Lord laying on him, this servant, the iniquity of us all, 
and it being the Lord's will to crush him and put him to grief. Deliver him up, goes as it is written of him. And what Jesus is doing, I believe, is he's bringing these two images together to say the king of all creation, the one who has the right and the authority to rule with power and dominion over everything that God has created, is the one who would suffer, is the one who would be crushed, is the one who would be put to grief, is the one who would be handed over and delivered up. And when he says this, church, listen, what he is affirming is that his death on the cross is not a coincidence of human history, but it is the climax of God's story of redemption. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't that the stars all rightly aligned by some fate, but it was God ordained from before the foundations of the world that the Lamb would be slain. See, it was never, listen, it was never God's plan to take away our sin by the blood of an animal sacrificed on an altar and sprinkled upon the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was never God's plan to take away sin through sacrifice of an animal in the temple. But it was always, always, always God's plan to deal with our sin by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross that the lambs that were slain in the Old Testament would point forward. So whenever John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he doesn't say, Behold the King who has come to rule. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's always been God's plan. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And yet down in verse 10 of Hebrews 10, it says, And by that, by His offering of Himself, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He didn't take away our sin through bulls and goats, but through a blemishless, spotless Lamb of God, His own Son, the King of all creation, in our place. The center of the supper is substitution. That's what this is about. And you're like, what? Okay. What does that mean? There's so many things that it means, but I'll give you one of them this morning. One of them this morning. I believe is life altering. Listen. The substitution is not only the center of the supper, church, but it is also, for those who are in Christ, the center of your very self. The center of your very identity. See, I want you to consider something with me for a second. And this is super practical because you have two choices when it comes to understanding yourself. You have two choices when it comes to understanding your identity. You can either understand your identity as something that you have achieved. Right? You can build your identity on being a successful parent, on being a successful business person, on being a great husband or a phenomenal wife. You can build your identity on being the perfect child who always gets everything right. You can build your identity and achieve an identity in academics and the grades that you earn. You can build your identity and achieve an identity for yourself in all kinds of ways, but I want to tell you something this morning. That is an exhausting way to live. 
Because you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've done enough in somebody else's eyes for them to see you the way that you want to be seen. So you can build an identity, a very self, and understand yourself by everything that you have done, everything that you've achieved. Or the other option is this, that you can build an identity not by what you've achieved, but by what you've received. Those are the only two options when it comes to understanding yourself. Is identity achieved or identity received? Something that has been given apart from anything that you have done. And listen, whenever you understand that at the center of the supper, at the center of the very heart of the Christian faith, is this truth of substitution. Jesus in my place. Jesus for me. Jesus on my behalf. When you understand that, and you begin to live out of that reality, then you're no longer trying to fight and claw on the backs of other people or of your accomplishments to achieve an identity because you've received one that can never be stripped away from you. Can never be taken away. And that is not dependent upon what you've done because you don't have to work to impress God. You don't have to work any longer to impress others. And guess what? You don't have to work any longer to impress yourself. Which I wonder how often, how often so much of our work, we say, I'm not trying to impress God. I'm not trying to impress other people. But we're trying to impress the person staring back at us in the mirror to say, you matter. But to understand substitution at the very center of the supper and the very center of the Christian faith is to say, Listen, that while every other attempt to understanding myself spells itself D-O, right? Do, 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 more, 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 more. That, the, that when you understand identity received, it's not spelled D-O, but D-O-N-E. It is finished. It's been done. When you understand yourself through those lenses, then you can sing with Isaac Watts this hymn that he wrote many years ago, I Boast No More, where he writes, No more, my God, I boast no more. Of all the duties I have done, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of Thy Son. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before Thy throne, but faith can answer Thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. No more, my God, no more. I boast no more. You don't have to boast anymore to impress yourself. You don't have to boast anymore to impress others. And you don't have to boast anymore to impress God. If you understand the very center of this table is substitution. Jesus for you. Second thing I think this text teaches us about the supper is that only sinners are welcome. Now listen, the Gospel of Mark, it, it paints a very bleak picture of humanity. I'm just going to be real with you this morning. Right? And it's very consistent with what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, in Mark's Gospel, you've got these three groups of people. Right, that are representative of all of humanity. You have the crowds who follow Jesus around from town to town. You have the religious leaders who plot against Jesus to take His life. And you have the disciples who are constantly 
messing stuff up. Right? But consider how each of these groups of people respond to Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Listen, following Jesus' condemnation of the temple operations and the corruption that was there in Mark chapter 11, the religious leaders of His day began to seek ways to destroy Jesus. In chapter 11, verse 18, they went from questioning Jesus' authority in 11.27-28 to to aiming to arrest Him in 12.12 and then attempting in the first two verses of Mark 14, we're told these religious leaders were actively seeking to arrest and kill Jesus but wanted to do it secretly because there were so many people gathered there at the feast to celebrate Passover that they didn't want to stir up any insurrection from within the crowd because he was a, the crowd was a fan of Jesus at this point. And yet... So that's the religious leaders. However, later in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 15, verse 13, you see the crowds, the very crowds that the religious leaders were terrified of stirring up into a frenzy by arresting and killing Jesus. Those very crowds are the ones that are calling out, crucify Him, give us Barabbas, a convicted criminal, and crucify Jesus. Ha! So the crowds turn on him. The religious leaders are trying to take his life at every turn. And you would think that the twelve, right, they're thick as thieves with Jesus, right? Thick as blood. They would never abandon Jesus. They would never betray Jesus. They would never deny Jesus. And yet, by the end of the book, they've done all three of those things. See, up to this point in Mark's Gospel, here's what's profound. Up to this point in Mark's Gospel, Every time Jesus predicts his passion, every time he says, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, and I'm going to be crucified, but I'll rise again. Every time Jesus predicts his passion, here's how his disciples respond. They assert themselves, boast about their faithfulness, or they jockey for position. In other words, every time Jesus humbly predicts his passion, his disciples respond in prideful self-assertion. Look at it with me. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, when Jesus says that He must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again, Peter feels so strongly about what he hears that he rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'll see your rebuke and raise you one of My own. Right? And He says, you're not thinking with the mind of God, but with the mind of Satan. So get behind Me. Second, in Mark chapter 9, verses 31 to 34, when Jesus predicts again that he would be delivered into the hands of men, killed after three days' rise, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. They had no idea what he meant. And listen, rather than going, Jesus, give us some clarification, man. Help us understand. Would you explain this to us? Rather than seeking clarification, what they do is they ask, they end up arguing amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. In addition, in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 37, when Jesus predicts that in Jerusalem he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, condemned to death, and handed over to the Gentiles who would mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he would rise, the very next thing out of the disciples' mouth comes from the lips of James and John asking to sit on his left and on his right whenever he comes in glory. Every single time! Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be handed up. I'm going to be tortured, killed, and rise again. They say, Jesus, man, we want to be on your right and left. We want positions of power, privilege, and prestige. 
And then they look at each other. Who's the, I'm better than you are. I'm be, no, I'm better than you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Kind of that little grade school type deal, right? That's what they resort to. And Peter feels so strongly that he rebukes him. And in fact, again, here in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and delivered over, and he takes the bread and he breaks it, and he takes the cup and they drink it, and they leave, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and he says, all of you will defect from me. Peter says what? Not me. Not me, Jesus. Even if all of them, Jesus, even if they all abandon you in your hour of need, Jesus, I want... I won't. And, and what does Jesus say? Listen, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about, bro. Right Before the sun rises, you will deny me three separate times. Over and over and over again. And listen, church, one of the things this means is you see, listen, you see the last supper that Jesus shares with His disciples in which He institutes the Lord's Supper? you see it sandwiched in between Jesus' prediction of His betrayal by Judas and Jesus' prediction of His denial by Peter. And I believe one of the things that means for us is this, is that it is not for the worthy for whom Jesus lays down His life, but for the unworthy. Even the cowardly and the unfaithful, those who would abandon Him, those who would deny Him, and those who would betray Him. This sandwich that Mark operates with, listen, it beautifully paints the picture of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says, God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were really good people. Is that what it says? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, church, D.A. Carson, a renowned New Testament scholar says this in his commentary on the book of Mark. He says, in placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus would pour out His blood include His own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. The sin of Caligula or Nero or the legions of tyrants ever since, but the sin of His own disciples, of Peter and James, of you, and of me. He says the essential evil in the world and the essential atonement for the evil of the world are present at the table of the Lord's Supper whenever it is celebrated. It's here because it's in you. It's here because it's in me. One 20th century philosopher, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think I got that name right. He says this, he says that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, without exemption. Now at first you may say, wait a minute, right? I'm not as bad as Nero. Eddie was burning Christians as torches to light his garden parties back in the day. I'm not as bad as Caligula or as bad as Hitler or as bad as Bin Laden, right? And I hope not. <laughs> right? That is not an insignificant difference. That's a pretty significant one. Right? However, listen, in knowing your own heart, in knowing your own heart, 
It is not only important to know what you've done, but what you would have been capable of doing given the right circumstances that you found yourself in. What you would have been capable of doing and ask yourself the question, could I commit great evil given the right circumstances? And you know what the Bible says? Yes. Yes. And this is the doctrine of the universality of sin. There is nothing and no one exempt from its effects. And every time disciples of Jesus come to the Lord's Supper, what is present at the table, listen church, is what is wrong with the world. You and me. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian thinker back in the 20th century, was one of a panel of authors that the London Times sent out a, a note to asking for their take on what is wrong with the world. And famously, they asked, what is wrong with the world today? And famously, Chesterton is said to have responded with a one-sentence essay. He said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He understand the universe, he understood the universality of sin. That it's not, it doesn't run between political parties. That it doesn't run between social classes. That it doesn't run between nationalities, but it runs right through your heart and right through mine. And listen, there's some of you who are listening to this and you're like, yeah, man, I get it. I know the Christian doctrine that everybody's a sinner. Right? Tell me something I don't know. I am. I am telling you something that you don't know. I'm telling myself something that I struggle with at times as well. Miroslav Volf in his book, The Spacious Heart, says forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. See, one of the reasons we have such trouble with forgiveness whenever someone lies about us or lies to us. One of the reasons we have such trouble with forgiveness whenever someone is cruel to us rather than kind towards us is because what we do in those moments toward other people is we flatten them. Listen, we make them one-dimensional. We say they're just cruel or they're just a liar. And yet whenever we respond by massaging the truth a little bit, or whenever we respond with words of unkindness in the moments of our frustration, it's different for us because we're complex individuals, right? We have all these facets and dynamics. We're three-dimensional. They're one-dimensional caricature and we flatten them, but we're three-dimensional. It's complex for us. I don't know if anybody else in the room has ever found themselves in that self-justifying position. But if you have, then you don't really believe in the universality of sin. That it runs right through your heart. And right through mine. Listen, there may have only been one traitor in a formal sense in this text. And one denier in a formal sense in this text. But listen, by the end of the gospel account, every single one of them would betray him. They would either betray him for greed, they would betray him from weakness, they would betray him out of fear, or they would betray him out of cowardice. All throughout Mark chapter 14. You see, church, the division that runs through the world is not between good people and bad people. But the division that runs through the world is between God and all people. And all people. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. One of the things it means is this, is that there, when it comes to coming to the table, listen, it means that there are no choice people who are coming to the table, just chosen ones. 
Listen, I don't know if you like beef as much as I do, okay? I, I enjoy a good steak, okay? I, by the way, if you go to Costco, man, you can get some great steaks at Costco, okay? You doctor them up however you want to season those puppies. You throw them on the grill. You sear them to perfection, right? For me, that's going to be a warm red center. That disgusts some of you, I know. It's going to be a warm red center, Okay? But at Costco, listen, at any meat counter that you go to, there's going to be labels on all of that beef that you're shopping from. You will have, uh, and, and one of the perhaps most famous is choice, right? And what the choice label means is the select cut of beef. In other words, the marbling is just right, right? Um, you know, there's not too much fat, not too little, so it has, it's juicy, it's flavorful whenever you cut into it. Man, it makes your mouth water. Right? And you have the highest, choicest cuts of meat. And listen, in our culture, for those who wrestle with the universality of sin and knowing that only sinners can come to the table, one of the reasons, listen, one of the reasons that we don't forgive, one of the reasons that we harbor debt or harbor grievances and bitterness, one of the reasons that you and I Right? Disdain other groups of people that we put into other categories and say, well, they, they, that they're the problem with the world. One of the reasons that takes place is because most of us, right, we believe that we're not perfect human beings, but we're choice human beings. Right? We're, we're the highest cut of human there is. And if everybody would just be like us, the world would be a great place. But over and over and over again, the Bible will say this, that there are no choice human beings, only chosen ones. Ones upon whom God sets His affection and loves, draws into relationship with Himself, lavishes His grace upon. And the reason I say that only sinners are welcome at the table is because until you understand that you need a substitute, then you don't have a place here of coming to take the body and coming to take the cup, the bread and the cup. Until you understand that you need someone to live in your place, fulfill the law perfectly. You need someone to die in your place and to receive your just judgment from God on account of your sin until you understand that you need a substitute, that you are a sinner. Listen, every sinner is welcome at the table if you know you need someone in your place. But for those who say if the world would just be like, everyone in the world was just like me, the world would be a great place. Then Jesus would say, there's no place for you here at the table. Because only sinners are welcome. At the center of the table is substitution. And those who are welcomed are only those who recognize they need one. And acknowledge that they are sinners. Third and finally, and, and this will be really quick. The supper, it creates a new family. It creates a new family. And it's worth noting that in ancient Judaism, the Passover was normally shared by family units. And extended families. So they would gather in the homes potentially of the eldest. Right, where they lived kind of in these kind of compounds almost, right? Where they built onto houses and you had multiple generations living together. Okay? 
which is crazy in Western America, right? But you, this is what Allie lived, okay? Um, and so they would all celebrate the Passover meal together. And oftentimes, you would go back to your family's home in order to celebrate the Passover. But I want you to consider something. What Jesus does whenever he institutes the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, is he doesn't send the disciples back to their homes. He doesn't send the disciples back to their families, but he draws them to himself. And he shares it with tax collectors and fishermen and zealots. A very mixed bag of social classes in first century Judaism. Because what Jesus is saying is this, listen, what this supper does, when you recognize that you need a substitute, that you're a sinner who's welcome at this table, that then you are welcomed with all the other sinners who know that they need someone living and dying in their place. And the supper creates a new family because it tells us this, that listen, you're, this is going to be hard for some of us to palate, your primary identity is not derived from your biological family, Jesus would say, but from your family of faith. Jesus said it earlier in Mark's Gospel, right, when his mother and brothers and sisters come to arrest him. And what does he say? Who are my mother? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who do what? The will of God. That's my family, Jesus says. That's my primary community. My primary family is those that I come to this table with as saved reconciled sinners who have a substitute living in their place because we have more in common church we have more in common with other christians of a different race of a different nationality of a different political affiliation and just by the way just to set the record straight republicans and democrats can be christians though i disagree with both of them on multiple issues politically but they can be Christians. And I have more in common with them than I do with a non-Christian in my own biological family. A non-Christian of the same race. A non-Christian of the same nationality. A non-Christian of the same political affiliation or the same upbringing. As a sinner, welcome to the table by our substitute and Savior. It creates a new family. And my prayer for one of my prayers for us as a church is that we would reflect that. Within our body. By a willingness to receive fishermen like me, zealots, tax collectors. Those with varying perspectives different upbringings and affiliations. But they would know that at the cross, there is one substitute, one Savior for every sinner, including me, including you, and including those in our community. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us the band's going to come and they're going to take the elements together this morning before they come on stage to lead us. 
But as we come to the table this morning, I think it would be appropriate for us, not only this morning, but every time we come to the table, to pray the prayer of David when he asked God to search his heart, to know his thoughts, to reveal if there is any unconfessed and unrepentant sin in his life so that we would not come to the table as those unaware, but as those deeply aware of the fact that we need the body, that we need the blood, we need the bread, we need the cup because we need a substitute. Listen, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, whether you're a member of this church or not, you've repented of sin, you've trusted in Christ to save you, that you're, you're, you're like, yes, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. Then we invite you to come to the table and take of the bread and the cup. But if you believe the world would be better off if everybody was just like you, <laughs> then we would just say, stay where you're seated this morning and continue to come and hear the gospel preached week after week. And we will continue to pray for you that God would open your heart to understand and receive this identity that's given through a substitute who lived and died in your place so that you could come freely confessing that you are a sinner and knowing that you need a substitute. Unless you know you need it, then stay seated. But if you know you need it, if you know you need it, we invite you to come and receive the cup. I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, I'm going to invite the band to begin to move forward and receive the elements so they can lead us in song as we take the bread and the cup together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that you have provided a substitute that we might be able to take shelter under the shadow of his wings, under the blood of this lamb who was slain for us. So that whenever your final judgment comes, God, that we would not be swept away in it, but that you would pass over us as you pass through the earth. In the same way that you did with Israel, on account of the blood that was smeared upon the doorposts of their homes. Father, I pray this morning that for everyone who has taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb, for everyone who has acknowledged their sin and knows that that is the reason they're able to come to this table, is because they need to take of the body and to take of the blood, to take of the bread and to take of the cup. That the blood of Jesus was poured out not just for those out there, but for them. God, may we rejoice in celebrating what you've done on our behalf. But Father, for those who have not yet come to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior, I pray they would not move from their seat this morning because others are. 
And I pray they would not feel any shame about that. But they would continue to come to hear your word preached, to connect with other Christians, to understand what it means to be a Christian, so that one day they might be at this table with us. And Father, I pray that we would be remembered month after month as we take of the bread and the cup that this is what binds us as a church. In covenant with you and in covenant with each other. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.